The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 5. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing 10 tales to terrify you, all of them from author Tobias Wade. Short and shivery stories about demonic revenge, unsettling secrets, splintering worlds, Self-help insanity, funeral flora, saintly sinners, draconic dogs, terrible towns, and, well, stories best told in the dark. 
You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first five spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight from Tobias Wade tells us of the consequences of vengeance and how your job in the afterlight might be, well, only the beginning. Without further ado, I present to you, Hell is Heaven for the Demons. Justice isn't blind. If she cannot see, then it's simply because she doesn't care enough to look. She turned away that dark night my sister was attacked, where even the moon and stars must have hidden their faces in shame. From all accounts, it was an anonymous act of brutality, an impulsive flight, a brief struggle, the humiliation of rape, and then the lifetime of silent nightmares that must surely follow such a depraved violence. I've heard it's a common story, where the lonely roads meet beyond the protective halo of street lamps, for all the virtues we profess, there's a savagery dormant in us, waiting only for our fellow man to blink. It's easy to be noble while someone's watching, and the fear of judgment may yet steady the course. In solitude, the moral compass will lose its bearing, replaced by whichever base instinct can scream louder than our pounding blood. It's some consolation that I found the one who valued his greed over human dignity. Through the course of these confessions, you'll see that I'm no better than the animal I hunted, so I'll waste no time professing my merit now. I buy substances from a man who knew everything that happened in his neighborhood, and like anyone who seeks profit from another's misfortune, he was willing to sell me the name I required. I found the rapist when he returned to the street my sister suffered upon, pacing and circling like a hungry animal, haunting the doorstep of his last meal. He didn't see me coming, and I made no sound nor spoke no word save for the poetry my bullet inscribed in his skull. I should have departed at once, but the satisfaction that his last throes of life promised lured me into a complacent voyeurism. I stayed to tell him that my sister sent her love, hoping to purchase her closure with the death rattle rising in his throat. I wasn't expecting repentance, nor did I receive it. It wasn't the first time, and it won't be the last were his final words to reach living ears. I've no one to blame but myself and my zealous retribution for failing to notice that he didn't work alone. They were on top of me in moments, 
wrestling me to the ground and stomping my gun away from my shattered hand. Knives punctured my back and neck, leaving great sucking wounds that inhaled the night air, wounds breathing in place of my lungs, which were swiftly filled with blood. There weren't any magnanimous thoughts or profound revelations as the light went out. One moment there was simply light and pain and noise, and then nothing, and then nothing. And then I opened my eyes to find I was no longer of this world. I knew at once, despite the fact that I was sitting at a quite ordinary wooden desk, in a room no larger than a janitorial closet. On the desk was a piece of paper, and on the paper was a question, and in that question was written my fate for eternity. Welcome to hell. Would you like to... 1. Remain human. You'll be tortured by those who become demons. 2. Become a demon. You'll torture those who remained human. P.S. If there aren't enough people to volunteer to remain human, they will be chosen randomly. I do not believe it is within my nature to torture anyone. Even my sister's abuser received death as fast as an executioner's axe. But no more could it be said it is within my nature to receive torture as unnatural a human construct as can be imagined. But if I had to choose, as I'm sure many of you would have done so far, removed from the judgment of both man and God, then I choose to accept my new home and dawn the mantle of hell I was offered. I steeled myself against the horrendous transformation I pictured, imagining razor talons growing from my bones, to rip holes in the flesh or an entropic decay to rack my body until my skin ran down my face like candle wax. No physical transformation came over me, though, a phenomenon which I can only account to the devil's ironic sense of humor. I knew it from the first moment the floor dropped underneath to fling me down into the carnal realm, however. I was a demon now, and it was heaven to me. I expected the first time to be harder. The woman was presented to me in perfect physical health. I haven't noticed any discrepancies in age since I arrived. Everyone looks to be in their mid-twenties here. The room was sealed, and I was given an hour to work on her. I find it distasteful to dwell on exactly what I did, but I remember rationalizing it cleanly with the knowledge that she was only here because she deserved it. Never mind that I was here, too. Never mind that it could have been me randomly chosen. Never mind that she could have volunteered to suffer like this to spare another. She was in hell, and it was my job to make sure she knew it. It wasn't until I'd finished that I learned the second rule of this infernal game. Once the hour of punishment had been completed... The human is offered a choice. They can get revenge on me, or they can accept their pain and continue their journey. Those who refuse the chance to retaliate shall be incrementally elevated until at last their soul is cleansed 
and they are set to be reborn on earth. If, however, they choose to turn the torture on me instead, I will be nourished by the pain and descend further along the dark road I've chosen. For each blow inflicted upon me, my skin hardens, my muscles tighten, and my power will flourish. It didn't take long for me to realize how to properly play. The only way for me to progress was to inflict a punishment so foul and induce a hatred so deep in my victim that they chose revenge over the quality of their immortal soul. And progress I must, for untold centuries of this game repeated has refined some demons into legendary masters of their craft. Those demons have carved out kingdoms for themselves in this infernal domain, and through their countless successes, have transformed themselves into towering behemoths of apocalyptic ability, shattering the landscape with their tread and sending their lessers into groveling servitude. Since the moment I chose to become a demon, the gates of absolution have been closed to me forever. It may be my fate to dwell in this realm, but it was my choice to rule it. And so I went to work honing my skill. It wasn't enough to simply batter the humans into submission. If I was to force their hand against me, I had to get inside their mind, caressing and nurturing their spirit into one of mindless wrath. I learned to expose the subconscious dread lying dormant that even the bravest dare not shed light on. I mastered the art of wetting my brush in nightmares to repaint their memories until all they once knew of life was corrupted by my influence. I promised false salvation or deceived them into thinking they had escaped or spoiled their loved ones until they could not contain the anger I imbued within them. But I didn't stop there. I studied the ancient text of demonic lore recounting the torment of dying stars from the beginning of time. I served under the foulest creatures I could find, watching their methods and improving upon their design. Experimentation, research, and endless practice refined my mastery over the subtle art until I could induce a pain so exquisite that angels would shed their wings for a chance to smite me down. And ever I grew stronger, building a devoted following of my own to gather more humans, ever inventing and facilitating the process of extracting unbearable anguish. My human form twisted into a sentient shadow to reflect the pervasive nature of my approach each victory making it that much easier to dismantle my prey. And I loved every second of it. I relished in my progression and thought I could live here until the end of time, prospering and expanding my reign to all corners of the nether realm. Perhaps one day I would supplant the devil himself, designing my own games to watch the universe fold and decay beneath my guiding hand. And perhaps I would have continued this road forever had it not been for the fateful encounter where I finally met my match. 
A human was pushed into the room with me, and the door closed behind. I had an hour to play, but I wanted more. It was the man who murdered my sister, infuriatingly smug and dismissive of my ability to break his spirit. I thought I would enjoy this more than anything, but to my mounting dismay, he stubbornly resisted my influence. He remained passive through the acid wash of his nerves. His mind did not falter as I summoned the image of his father's lamentations against him. Every trick, every torment, every mental ravaging left him smirking, until with exasperation I resigned myself to goad him into action. He must feel cheated, forced to remain human, at the mercy of every lowly criminal who cares to punish you. I wasn't forced, he replied. I made the choice. Then you're an idiot who deserves what he gets. And what I'll get is freedom. I told you this wasn't the first time, and that it won't be the last, he said. I've been to hell so many times that it bores me. So that was his secret. He had gotten out before. He knew how to play the game, but it didn't matter because no one played it like I did. So you won't retaliate, I asked, no matter what I do. He shook his head, the smirk unaltered. I'm going back to Earth, and when I do, I'm going to remember this like I always do. I'm going to wait until I've grown strong again, and just for this... Find your sister, and I'm going to do it again. I had almost forgotten about my sister, about the world above filled with its myriad of joys and sorrows. I missed her in that moment. I missed being alive, and as much as I enjoyed the role I had carved myself here, I wanted to be back again. The thought that this monster would patiently wait out his trials cheating the system over and over to return to his life of sin, it made me sick. The tables had turned, and all the hatred I sought to pour into him was rushing into me instead. I wanted nothing more than to flay him down to the core of being and set such a fire in what remained to burn for all of time. But even if somehow I could force his hand against me, even if I broke him so badly that he never escaped, I would still be here forever. And I hated him. And I hated myself. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done to hold on to that hatred and turn it aside. And harder still to let him walk away. To bide my time, sending the weakest demons in my possession so that he might easily resist their influence. Watching and waiting, and even helping my sister's attacker elevate through the hell until the time of his salvation was at hand. It was hard, but it was worth it, because that is when I chose to strike. I'd already learned to infiltrate the mind in my pursuit of torture, and through my mastery, I infiltrated the spirit as well. I hid within his soul when his judgment was passed, concealing my hatred within his hatred, tempering my fire with his calculating patience. And when that soul was whisked away, 
I traveled with it, sleeping so softly, within his dreams that even he did not know he bore me as his silent passenger, until the day when he was born again on earth, and I with him. The struggle was violent but brief. It is easy to wrestle an infant's mind from them, and when the child's eyes opened, it was I who looked out. He may resist me yet, but I bear with me all the subtle crafts I have honed in hell, carrying them to earth where they can be put to better use. You see, hell is heaven for the demons, but all the worst of us have found our way back home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. I hope you enjoyed Hell is Heaven for the Demons, as written by author Tobias Wade and performed by yours truly. Our second tale for the evening from Mr. Wade concerns a dying grandfather ready to impart a final story to his grandson, though maybe some stories are best uh, kept to oneself. Without further ado, I present to you An Old Man's Last Secret. My grandfather was 95 years old and not long for this world. There was nothing but a mess of tubes and wires to tether him here with us. It was difficult for him to speak, but each rasping whisper carried a severe weight that could not be interrupted. My family didn't like to talk about things like death, though, so whenever I visited him with my dad... We tended to spend most of the time sitting in near silence. What a news week, huh? My dad might have said. Mm. Grandfather would have grunted, Crazy world. Then again, silence. Small talk seemed almost disrespectful to the gravity of the situation, but no one wanted to be the first to broach the irrevocable goodbye. When the silence got too loud, my dad would start to fidget with his phone or pull out a book until one of us made an excuse to leave. That's how it went yesterday, with my father mumbling something about a dentist appointment and hurrying out the door almost as soon as we arrived. You'll stay, though, won't you? My grandfather said when we were alone in the room together. You'll listen to an old man's last secret. This was it, then. The end of the road was in sight. Would you like me to call Dad back? I asked. Grandfather shook his head as far as the oxygen tubes would allow it to turn. I'd rather he didn't know. I already knew some of the story he told me. It began when my grandfather was twenty years old, living in Nazi Germany. 
He'd been working forest labor on a farm, but managed to smuggle my grandmother and infant father out of the country, hidden in a grain shipment. He'd been caught almost immediately and sent to the concentration camp at Buchenwald, where he endured the next two years until he was liberated by Allied forces. You don't have to tell me what happened there if you don't want to. I told him. I wasn't sure I wanted to hear the gruesome details. He was unusually animated and persistent, though, promising it was something that needed to be said. He wouldn't have survived the ordeal if it hadn't been for a friend he'd met there. One of the Nazi officers, Rotenfuhrer, squad leader, had taken a special interest in him because of their striking similarity in age and appearance. The two would sit on either side of a barbed wire fence and swap stories about their childhoods. My grandfather would talk about my grandmother, how beautiful she was, and how he wouldn't give up until he found her again. The SS officer had gone straight from the Hitler Jugend, Hitler Youth Group, to the army, and he never had been intimate with a woman. He became enraptured in my grandfather's tales of romance, and the two became close friends, despite the circumstances. The officer twice spared my grandfather's name from work assignments that meant certain death, and he'd often slip extra rations through the fence, which my grandfather would then distribute to other prisoners. It wasn't a good life, but it was a life, and that was good. Grandfather said, Things changed as the war began drawing to a close. The Nazi officers became increasingly paranoid and desperate as the Allied forces moved in. It became common practice for lower-ranking officers to be held as scapegoats when impossible work orders were not met. Besides that, the rumor of the Rottenfuhrer was protecting my grandfather, put him in a dire position with his own officers. Faced between protecting my grandfather and his own hide, the Rotenfuhrer signed the order for my grandfather to be sent to a nearby armaments factory. Eighteen-hour workdays, starvation rations, no medical attention. The factory might as well have been a death sentence. The three-month survival rate was less than 50%. In the name of love, my grandfather pleaded, let him survive to find his sweetheart again. She was waiting for him in America. The Rotenfuhrer was moved, but his decision was final. His only compromise was to record the address of where she went, promising to send her a letter to let her know what happened to him. So how did you survive? I asked. Did he change his mind? Were you rescued from the factory? Shielded from the worst of the camp by the Rotenfuhrer, the transition to the factory proved too difficult for the young farmer. He didn't last the first week. What do you mean, didn't last? How'd you get out? The exertion of the long story was taking its toll on my grandfather. He coughed and wheezed, struggling to draw breath for several seconds before clearing his throat a final time. On April 11th, 1945, the Buchenwald camp was liberated. Many of the Nazis had already abandoned their position and fled into the country. Others decided to lock themselves inside, 
pretending to be prisoners themselves so the Allied forces would have mercy on them. This was especially convincing for those who had taken the time to get to know the prisoners and could assume their identities. When an SS officer gave the information and address of his lost love, he was allowed to board the next transport ship returning to America to be returned with her. The gears in my head were turning, turning, and then stopped. Your grandmother was suspicious at first when I met her, but she accepted that the war had changed me. Besides, I knew so many stories about her that she couldn't deny our shared history. I raised his boy as my own and lived the life he dreamed of every night until death. Do you think your real grandfather would forgive me if he knew? I didn't have an answer for him then, and I didn't get another chance. He died in his sleep that night, after a long and happy life that wasn't his. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed An Old Man's Last Secret, as written by author Tobias Wade and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the first two tales and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash wade. Again, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Wade, spelled W-A-D-E, and you'll be redirected to his Amazon profile, where you can check out his works, including the Sleepless Nights short story collections, where you can find many of tonight's stories in print. And by all means, if you enjoy what you read, don't forget to leave him a five-star review and a kind word, and let him know you heard about him here on this show. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Our third trek into the dark recesses of the unknown begins now, courtesy once again of Tobias Wade. Have you ever felt like the world was coming apart? Well, the narrator of this story is literally watching the world splitting at the seams, and only he seems to notice. Without further ado, I present to you A Cracked Life. I was 16 when I saw the first crack. 
a jagged line, almost four feet long, but less than an inch wide. I found it by the sidewalk behind my house. Not on the sidewalk. The crack was in the air, visible from every direction as I circled around it, harmlessly suspended, and nothing more. I couldn't touch it. My hand passed through the crack as though it wasn't there, leaving me white and numb with cold by the time I reached the other side. I wouldn't walk close to it. Something about the emptiness just rubbed me the wrong way. I've walked around caves, stared down holes, even used a telescope to look at the space between stars. This crack wasn't like that. It felt less like something was missing and more like something extra that shouldn't be there. My family moved shortly after the discovery, and I forgot all about it for a while. Time moved steadily forward, except maybe for a few months after college, when it stopped to let me admire my future wife. Her smile hinted at a secret, and if I had a guess, I'd say it was the secret to being happy. I would have given anything to explore every hidden crevice of her mind, knowing her as she knew herself. Then we could start making secrets of our own. It was about a week after we met at work, when we both had to stay late to clean up after an office party. I asked her to come sit on the roof and look at the sky with me. There we were, side by side, the space between our hands burning like fire, the shape of her mouth illuminated by the backdrop of endless stars. They gleamed like millions of envious eyes wishing they could sit where I was. I didn't know anything could make me feel so weak. My legs trembled, and I kept switching positions so she wouldn't notice. I didn't trust the words in my mouth or the thoughts in my brain. I didn't trust any other part of me, which was soon blurred out of existence, to make room for my appreciation of everything that she was. That's when I saw the crack again, and I was reminded how powerful weakness really could be. It was larger now, running along the side of an external AC unit. Not quite alongside. If you really looked, uh, I could see the empty air between the metal box and the crack. I could just make out the little streaks of light where the surrounding stars bled into the hole to be lost forever. There was a cookie-cutter gap in reality that the world forgot to fill in. "'You can leave whenever you want,' she said. I guess she noticed I was distracted. I shook my head, prompting her fingers to trace their way up my hand. I turned to her, her breath warm against my mouth, and suddenly that was the only thing in the world. Six months later, we were engaged. Another year, and we were married. Neither of us stayed long at the office, and I never went back to that roof. The crack didn't matter. Bad dreams can't hurt you once you've woken up, and beside her grace, I was awake for the very first time. Things went well for us, but we were so in love that I don't think we would have noticed if they hadn't. I got an investment banking job and climbed the corporate ladder. I started seeing more cracks, but no one else noticed, so I didn't mention them. 
Sometimes they'd align perfectly to an existing object, but I could feel their emptiness pulling at me. I knew what they really were. There was a big one above the conference table at work, but I had a future here and wouldn't let something ethereal as that get in the way of my success. My diligence paid off when my boss finally told me that he was getting older and wanted to make me a partner for the firm. He was standing right on the other side of the crack when he spoke, and it was difficult to make eye contact with him. Unless you don't want to be partner, my boss had said, misreading my silence. Of course, you can leave whenever you want. The same words spoken to me before, but I hadn't recognized the significance yet. I just smiled and shook his hand, careful to reach underneath the crack, hanging between us. It was another dream come true, and I was king of the world. My wife and I moved into a big house, and we had a baby girl. I watched her grow and watched the cracks grow with her. Hairline fractures splintered the sky, mapping a web throughout the air. I had to be careful where I was walking. There could be a dozen of them in my path within a given day. I passed through a big one once in my car. I was changing lanes and didn't notice in time. The crack went straight through my windshield without disturbing the glass, passing through my heart and out the other side. Cold doesn't begin to describe it. The line erased my body as it passed through me, displacing skin and organs, leaving a sucking, vacuous wound for the briefest instant before it was gone. I lurched at the wheel and spun off the road into the guardrail. My hands kept racing over my chest, fist pounding against solid skin to reassure myself I was whole. I started working from home after that. The one bathroom didn't have any cracks in it, and I spent most of my time in there. I'd seen my wife and daughter walk straight through the cracks without the slightest notice. I couldn't explain to them what I saw or felt because I knew they'd think I was crazy. Maybe I was, but that didn't change anything. I'd sit in the bathroom for hours, working on my laptop or reading a book, loathe to leave where I might stumble through what wasn't there. My wife begged me to go outside. Sometimes I'd open the door just to walk around the house or sit with her in the living room, but I couldn't leave anymore. There were too many cracks, more every day it seemed. The world around me had shattered, and I was the only one who noticed. I knew it hurt her, but in time my wife accepted that this was how our life had to be. She made the best of it, always inviting friends or family here and uh, making excuses when I was expected somewhere. She took cooking classes and learned how to make all my favorite meals, even getting a small table and television installed in the bathroom I was confined to. My daughter was a different story. Eight years old, and no amount of explaining could make her understand how much I loved her, even if I wasn't always there. I didn't know how embarrassed she was of me until a teacher called to let me know she'd been telling all her friends that I was dead. I sat with her in the kitchen and asked her why she did that, but all she said was that I might as well have been. And she was right. I wasn't taking care of my family anymore. They had enough money put away, and 
They didn't need me to work. I was just a burden, and just like the cracks, the burden was growing every day. Some nights I wouldn't leave the bathroom to go to bed, and I could hear my wife crying through the wall between us. I tried pushing myself harder, willing myself, through the emptiness, but it wasn't any good. The cracks cut through me like a knife, freezing me to my core, shredding bone and sinew, and then stitching me back together so seamlessly that there was nothing but the memory of that pain to remind me of my torment. I was ready for this to be over. I just didn't know it until I heard the words from my daughter's mouth as she pressed against the other side of the bathroom door. You can leave whenever you want. Yes, I told her. I'm ready. All you've got to do is throw yourself into the big one, then you're out. She knew about the cracks. I jumped up and flung open the door. She wasn't there. I raced down the hall, shouting her name, forcing myself through each scaring darkness that severed my mind and body, heart and soul. I found her outside, standing next to the biggest abyss I'd ever seen. A wall of darkness ten feet across and ripping through the air above like a skyscraper. I could feel the call of that emptiness whispering to me, beckoning me, a promise of freedom and release that a lifetime of memories could not dissuade. Just do it already. You've been here long enough, my daughter said. But I was afraid. Even this far away from the blackness, I could imagine how those dark talons would feel as they rend my body. Would there be anything left of me to come out the other side? It was big enough that I didn't have to come out at all. I could step in and be gone. It's what my daughter wanted. So did my wife, if only she had the courage to admit it. And maybe it's what I wanted, too. But on my knees before all of creation and its antithesis, I was afraid. It's easy. Just follow me. I tried to stop her, air dragging through my lungs, feet stumbling and twisting. I made a desperate lunging grab. I tried to stop my daughter from entering that blackness, but she was gone and there was no choice but to follow. Into the looming void I plunged, screaming without sound, bleeding without wounds, integrating into nothing. And then I opened my eyes. I was reclining in a padded chair like they have at the dentist's office, three men standing over me, a plethora of beeping machines, IV lines, and heart rate monitors cluttered the room. Well, one of the men asked, how was it? You were out for almost an hour, added another. I couldn't answer. There was nothing left of me to answer. We kept sending signals telling you it was okay to leave, the third man said. Didn't you get them? I closed my eyes and took a long breath. Life 2.0 still has some bugs, but they told me they figured out how to fix most of the cracks if I wanted to go again. It's going to be ready for market soon, they said. People are going to love it, they said. Did you notice anything else that needs fixing? One asked me. Just in this world, I replied.
Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I hope you enjoyed A Cracked Life, as written by author Tobias Wade and performed by yours truly. Tired? Listless? Can't figure out how to focus your life? Our fourth little taste of the unusual, from Tobias Wade, follows the advice of a self-help guru who may not be as helpful as he sounds. Without further ado, I present to you My self-help tape told me to kill myself. I hate my job. I hate selling days of my life while barely earning enough to sustain it. I hate my boss, who tells me I'm lucky to find stable work in such an uncertain world. I hate my friends, who treat dreams like an unfortunate symptom of youth that needs to be outgrown. And most of all, I hate myself for not doing anything to change. I keep waking up at the same time every day to sit in traffic. I read the same lines on the same billboard with the same happy models leering down at me. I don't think I could go on if I thought this was all there was. But if I'm waiting, then I don't know what I'm waiting for. That's why I started listening to self-help tapes in the car. Motivational speakers would tell me about how I had the power to change my life. And for a few minutes at a time, I believed them. That obstacles, no matter how great, were only in my mind. And that anyone could be happy if they just willed it hard enough. And if I wasn't just happy yet, then I had to buy another book and keep trying. My favorite speaker was a guy named Joe Fallow, who claims he used to be a day laborer making less than minimum wage. When there weren't any jobs available, his fellow workers would play cards or chat, but he kept going door to door, knocking on businesses, until he found one that needed work done. Pretty soon, John had enough clients and extra money that he started hiring the other laborers to work for him instead. The more jobs he got, the more workers he hired, until, lo and behold, he was running a business of his own. Then they had a second location, and a third, and before you know it, he was a millionaire with 500 stores across the country. But it was never about the money, says the guy selling $30 audiobooks. He gave it all up so he could give motivational speeches and help others achieve their dreams. And sure, It was a lot of hard work and took many, many years. But he was the man he wanted to be doing the things he loved to do. And that's all that mattered in the world. Of course, hard work isn't the only way to solve your problems. John said on one of his tapes, In fact, there's a lot of you who are probably getting discouraged right now because you were hoping for a shortcut. Well, I've got news for you. Because there's a solution as easy as apple pie. You go on now and kill yourself, tonight. A 
couldn't believe I heard that right. I had to rewind, but there it was. Are you too fat? Well, diet and exercise is a lot of work, but you could put a gun to your mouth and never eat again. Or maybe you're feeling down because your relationship didn't work the way you wanted. No problemo. Just slip on that noose and suddenly your ex will be the one who hates herself, not you. John's warm, bubbling voice didn't miss a beat as he proceeded to list a number of foolproof ways to die. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Now, some of you are probably skeptical that this is the right choice for you, but don't you fret about it. I'll be hosting live demonstrations around the country, so check my website for details and come see if suicide is right for you. Part incredulous, part morbid curiosity, I visited his website and found he was hosting an event in my city next week. Sure enough, his website had a video of him standing on stage with a man who hung from the rafters by his neck. The crowd was cheering like wild as the dying man's body was racked with its final spasms. John Fallow lifted the dying man's hand to reveal a thumbs up, and the crowd cheered even harder as though their team had just scored the final goal. I bought a ticket and printed out the confirmation code. I don't know why I did it, but for the first time in a long time, I really felt like I had something to look forward to. John was a man's man, rugged and handsome as they come. He wore a cowboy hat pulled low over one eye, faded Levi's and a button-up shirt the day of the event. He greeted everyone at the front door with a firm handshake and a beaming smile, laughing and carrying on with people he'd just met like they were his oldest friends. I expected there to be at least a little outrage, but everyone who showed up seemed legitimately happy to be there. The feeling was contagious, and by the time I sat down with the rest of the audience, I already knew several people by name. Silly old me. I forgot what speech you all came to hear, John Fallow announced from the stage. Was it the one about working hard from morning till night, day in and day out? No, chorused a hundred voices around me. I was half surprised to recognize my own as one of them. How about the speech about it being your fault if you aren't happy because you ain't trying hard enough? No. So, you telling me all you fine folks showed up just to hear how to fix all your problems at once in less than five minutes? That is what you want to hear. The enthusiasm was deafening. John Fallow mimed whipping out a pair of pistols from an imaginary belt and rattled off shots into the audience. Everyone remotely close to the line of fire made a dramatic show of taking the bullet and collapsing into their chairs with great big grins on their faces. Then cheers again, an ocean of sound beating against my eardrums. Well, let's get started then, John roared. How about a volunteer? Come on now, don't be shy. There ain't nobody going to look down on you where you're going. A sea of hands like a flock of birds all taking flight at once, 
John stepped down from the stage and took the open hand of a middle-aged woman to help her into the spotlight. He led her to a stool on stage where she sat down. "'What's your name, gorgeous?' he asked. The woman swooned and mumbled something I couldn't hear. "'Caitlin, is that right?' he said in his booming voice. "'Tell me, Caitlin, what's wrong with your life? Loud and clear. Come on now.' I was supposed to get promoted this year. She said, her voice trembling, but audible. They gave the job to some young slut instead. Well, you aren't getting any younger, sweetheart. It's only going to get worse from here. She nodded and smiled as though that's exactly what she wanted to hear. I got just the thing for you, though, John said. A little medicine for what ails you. He produced a pill from a small leather bag in his pocket and offered it to her. She snatched it gratefully and clutched it in both hands. That's going to take the sting right out. Go on now. One quick swallow. Cyanide tastes just awful if you let it dissolve in your mouth. I watched with horrified fascination as Caitlin tossed the pill back and washed it down with a water bottle that John offered her. She gave a feeble smile as her face flushed bright red. The room watched in anxious silence as she started panting for breath, each labored heave more desperate than the last. Almost there, hon, John whispered, his microphone washing the sound over the audience. Let's see those bastards at work take this one away from you. Gaitlin fell off her stool and began rolling on the ground. The audience began to whoop and whistle. Within seconds, Caitlin lay still. Two men wearing staff shirts hustled out to drag her off stage. There was a brief silence when she stopped moving. I had the sense that everyone was trying to read the room, unsure of whether to scream or cheer. Then the applause began to ripple, tentative at first, but growing by the second until the whole auditorium vibrated with its intensity. I felt sick. An anxious feeling flooded my body, but the cheering confused me and made me think that it was all right. If we were doing something wrong, then surely someone would have said something by now. Unable to shake the uncertainty, I staggered from my chair and headed for the bathroom to clear my head. Outside the auditorium, I saw the two men wearing staff shirts exit a side door. The woman wasn't with them anymore. Was she still back there? Was she alive or dead? Maybe she needed help. One of the staff noticed me, his face screwing up with suspicion. I snatched a nearby trash bag and made to enter the door they'd just exited from. Hey, where do you think you're going? One asked. Are bringing some rope for John, I said, hefting the trash bag. Backstage is that way, right? The staff nodded and I slipped inside. I could hear the audience cheering again through the wall and felt the urge to cheer with them, but I thought better of it and stayed quiet. The hallway skirted the perimeter of the auditorium and I was able to track my progress toward the back of the stage by the sounds coming through the wall. Another uproar. Perhaps a second demonstration concluding. Another body to be dragged off stage. Not just a body. A human being. A father or a mother. A son or a daughter. 
That thought should have horrified me, but it didn't. They didn't ask to be alive. They didn't make the world the way it was. So why shouldn't they leave when they're ready? Looks like we've got a bleeder here, John's voice carried. That's it, boy. Let it all out. You're the lucky one. The rest of us have to clean up that mess. I must have been directly behind the stage at that point. The place was dark and cluttered with electrical and sound equipment. I saw no sign of the woman's body. The thought of stumbling across her, splayed out on the ground, nauseated me. I shouldn't be here. A shaft of light tore through the room as the stage curtain was pulled aside. The staff was dragging a college-aged boy by the hands. His throat was cleanly slit, and a sheet of blood soaked through his shirt and drained onto the floor. I hid behind an upright speaker and watched the staff prop the boy against the wall before they turned to exit. Well, let's all take a break while they get this cleaned up, John said from the stage. Fifteen minutes, then you'll all get your chance. The boy was still alive. Spitting and gurgling blood, he panted with feeble, wet gasps. His red-smeared teeth were locked in a vicious grin. I started to creep toward him, but another blast of light made me scramble back to concealment. John Fallow moved through the shadows to stand over the dying boy. The boy's grin twisted into one of agony. He struggled to stand, but John put a boot on his chest and forced him back down. Shh! He held a finger to his lips. Don't fuss. A lot of folks are dying to be you. He laughed at his private joke. The boy tried to answer, but the wet sucking sound which escaped his lips carried no words. You did this to yourself. You wanted to fit in so damn bad that you didn't care what you had to do. Now look at you. It was too late to save him. The boy was barely breathing now, and the pool of blood encompassing him was still growing by the second. John dropped to his knees to bring their faces level. It don't matter what other people expect from you, John said softly. The government wants you to make a lot of money to pay taxes. A holy man might tell you not to make any because it corrupts you. The people who sell burgers want you to be fat, and the people who sell diet pills want you to hate yourself for it. They all want something different from you, but you don't belong to them. You belong to you. The boy had stopped moving. I couldn't make out the faintest sign that he still drew breath. So what if you flunked out of school? Does that make the stars any less bright? Or the taste of strawberries more sour? Will you no longer feel your lover's caress? Or the ocean lapping your bare feet? Fear, pain, doubt. They're just passing clouds. And floating in front of the sun don't mean the sun ain't still there. So I'm going to give you another chance, John continued. You get back up and go outside and tell me what you see. And if it's nothing but clouds, then pick one and call it beautiful and love it forever, because it's all part of the same sky. With that, John Fallow pulled out a syringe and stuck it in the boy's chest. He began to buckle and squirm, 
but John held him down while wiping the blood from his neck with a handkerchief. It came off like makeup, leaving clean, fresh skin below. Get out of here, John said, and don't let me catch you back either. The boy scrambled to the door and disappeared. You too, John said, looking into the shadows, where I hid, or it won't be just blood capsules and a temporary paralytic for you. I ran for it. Outside I saw the boy with his head thrown back, looking straight up. Beside him was the woman who had taken the fake cyanide pill, head back and staring at the sky with wild eyes. I don't know whether they thought they'd really died and came back, or whether they knew it was a trick, but one thing I'm pretty sure is that neither of them had ever looked at the sky like that before. I know I hadn't. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I hope you enjoyed my self-help tape, Told Me to Kill Myself, as written by author Tobias Wade and performed by yours truly. Our fifth Tobias Wade story involves the death of a loved one and the gift she leaves to her husband and young daughter. Just know that the green thumb in this tale isn't just attached to the gardener. Without further ado, I present to you this flower only grows from corpses. My wife lost her battle against breast cancer last month leaving me alone to take care of our daughter, Ellie. Every single night, Ellie asks if Mom is going to tuck her in, and every night I have to beg her before she'll let me do it instead. How can I even begin to explain to a four-year-old that she'll never see her mommy again? I don't even know how to explain it to myself. If I died instead... I'm sure my wife would have known the right things to say. Death isn't a mystery to her like it was to me. She told me that a person's life force never really goes away. It only changes form. I hated hearing her talk about her death so casually, but she was always so soft and patient that even in her final hours it felt like she was the one who had come to protect and comfort me. You'll understand when I'm gone, she told me, leaning on my chest where we both crowded on the narrow hospital cot. Some flowers only grow from corpses, and when you see them, you will know that I'm still with you. She died that night, and no matter how many times I repeated her words, I couldn't feel her anymore. I told Ellie that Mom was a flower now, and she asked me which one. All of them, I said. She's every beautiful thing in the whole world. 
Ellie couldn't understand why I was crying, but she held on to me until she fell asleep, almost like she was the one trying to protect me, just like her mother did. I thought the flowers were just a metaphor for the good, which still remained in the world until the hospital called me the next day. They started asking me questions about my wife's mental health at the end, and I told them she was always the calmest, most peaceful person in the room. I guess I got kind of defensive about it and snapped at them, but they explained, We're just trying to figure out all the bumps on her body that were found during the autopsy. It looks like someone made a deliberate incision, stuck a seed inside, and sewed it back up. Hundreds of times. Some flowers only grow from corpses. She must have thought it was symbolic, but it was disgusting to me. Imagine her sitting alone in her hospital, stabbing herself over and over again. I thought I was going to be sick. They asked me if the mortician should take them out, and I said yes. The funeral director gave me a small velvet bag with all the seeds afterward, and I would have just thrown the vow thing away if Ellie hadn't stopped me. We can plant them, she squealed, although, of course, I couldn't tell her where they really came from. I still wanted to throw them out, but then she added, if they grow up to be tall and beautiful, then maybe Mom will come see them. I let her keep the seeds and helped her plant them in the backyard. It still grossed me out, but it gave Ellie a project to focus on to distract her from Mom's absence. Mom has turned into the flowers now, I told Ellie. It's what happens to everyone sooner or later. Pretty weak explanation, but it was the best I had, and my daughter accepted it as a fact of life. And what flowers! I'd never seen anything like them before. Blue and purple ones like galaxies being born, and great red trumpets burning brighter than living flame. They grew quick, too. Three inches with buds in the first week, and almost a foot tall with the first blossoms by the second. It's Mom! She's almost back! I'd gotten used to those little shrieks lately. Someday I knew I'd find the right words, but until then, the flowers were hope. I just hadn't counted on how convincing a hope they'd be. That one already has her hair. And look over here, she's smiling. Hair and teeth had started to grow by the third week. I thought it was just stringy stems at first, but it didn't take long before my wife's bushy brown hair was cascading down one of the plants like a lion's mane around the flower. The teeth were even stranger, tiny at first like baby teeth, but growing every day until a complete set of dentures encircled another blossom. And it didn't stop there, either. Fingers, starting with the bone, which sprouted a new layer of muscle each day. A heart, swelling like a ripening fruit and beating where it hung below the flower. Each plant was devoted to a specific body part, growing from child-sized to full-grown in a matter of days. I was absolutely horrified, but Ellie was ecstatic. The first thing she did every morning was race to the garden to see how much bigger they were, and every night she'd sit in the dirt and talk to the plants 
as though they were her mom. I wanted to cut them all down, but even mentioning the idea made Ellie scream like I was plotting murder. I didn't know what to do or who to tell, and honestly, part of me wanted to believe, too. Something miraculous was happening, and I didn't think it was my place to stop it. Hope can be more blinding than despair, and I didn't see my mistake until last night. I'd just gotten up to use the bathroom when I passed Ellie's room and found the door open. Ellie wasn't inside, but something else was. A long vine stretching from the garden, wrapping around Ellie's empty bed. The garden. I was wide awake in a second, tripping and scrambling over myself as I raced through the house. The front door was open, too, bright red flowers, twined around the handle, looking more the color of blood in the ghostly half-light of the moon. Ellie's stuffed bear was discarded along the way, completely encompassed in thick vines that had grown long, viscous thorns overnight. The whole backyard was alive. The ground looked like a storm-tossed ocean, dirt teeming with masses of squirming unseen roots. The plants had all converged on one spot where they formed a giant pulsing bud. Ellie! I screamed, charging toward the mast. A hand caught me by the wrist before I had taken two steps. A fully formed hand. My wife's hand. But she would never keep me from our daughter. I wrestled with the plant, gripping the hand cleanly free from where it sprouted. The roots were trying to entangle my legs, but I managed to kick loose before they had a solid hold. The shovel. I leaped toward the house, and the plant seemed to momentarily forget about me as they converged on the twitching bud. A moment later, and I was charging back in, hacking and slashing with the metal blade, severing root and stem, crushing fingers and splitting arms straight to the marrow, whatever it took to get through to my daughter. I was soaked in blood by the time I reached her, some of my own from the jagged thorns, but mostly bleeding freely from the wake of mutilation I left behind. Ellie didn't look like she was in pain. She was lying perfectly still, eyes closed as though asleep, entwined in hundreds of thorns which punctured her little body from all sides. As peaceful as my wife when she'd gone, but Ellie wasn't gone yet. She couldn't be. I severed the vines with my shovel until I could pull her free, carrying her in my arms as I fled the garden, her warm, draining blood drenching me as I went. These flowers need a corpse to grow, and after they were deprived of my wife's body, they found their own instead. My daughter wasn't breathing. Her heart had stopped. In each of the hundred wounds which covered her body, a tiny seed had been carefully planted to fill the hole. The whole garden was dead by morning, shriveling without its corpse like a drought-stricken field. Ellie died that night, too, but I know she isn't gone. It seems like death is the end, but I now understand that it's just a transformation. I've planted her and the seeds in the garden so they will have a body to grow from this time. And if I'm kind to this death, if I nurture it as though it were my child, then I know someday soon 
new life will sprout again. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I hope you enjoyed this flower, Only Grows from Corpses, by author Tobias Wade, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author has a lot more than just these little appetizers for you. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash wade. Once more, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash wade, spelled W-A-D-E, and you'll find yourself on the author's Amazon profile, where you can purchase novels or enjoy many more short tales guaranteed to make you wonder about the world you inhabit. And if you decide to give any of this talented author's books a read, please consider giving him a quality review and a kind word. And be sure to let him know you heard about him on this program and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please... Take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, 
a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.